Hi, everybody. Welcome to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, uh, your friendly neighborhood philosophy and comedy podcast. Uh, and you haven't introduced yourself yet, but I'll introduce myself. I'm Taylor Carmen, and I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I write mostly about early 20th century European philosophy. Yeah, I surely am not the only the first person to podcast in order to have no face. Maybe maybe I just don't want people to know who I am, and I just want to be a, a, a mysterious uh, yeah. perturbation in the in the discourse. Actually, I'm not. I'm Eric Kaplan. Uh, I'm a philosopher, and I'm a Hollywood writer. And now I'm a Hollywood writer who's back to work because we've resolved our strike. Hooray! Congratulations. Um, and that thing about about podcasting uh, in order to have no face was a joke about Michel Foucault, yep. um, and he's sort of the subject of this podcast. But that's not the question. What's the question, Taylor? What is the question? You know what? I'm going to pause. I'll tell you what the question okay. is. <laughs> you, you go. The question is, is the woke mind virus the fault of French philosophers? Okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> Here's another way to say it. We'll, we'll figure this out in editing. Was the woke mind virus created by French philosophers? It sounds like Frankenstein's monster yeah, or something. It's like in a lab on the West Bank. <laughs> Or not the West Bank, the left bank of the left Seine, bank. Yeah. a bunch of evil philosophers decided to yeah. put ideas together that should not be mixed. And they created <laughs> a woke mind virus. And that's why we have all these problems. It's a hodgepodge of stitched together body parts and organs. It is. It's got a little, maybe there's no such thing as truth. Yeah. And a little bit like, you don't need to listen to your parents. <laughs> yeah. And, and some, you know, yeah. sometimes a man could kiss another man and, and that's okay. All these scary things have been stitched together into this thing called the woke mind virus. Exactly. And, and it's scary. Let's just, let's just. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to postulate I'm going to stipulate yeah I'm going to grant that if there were a mind virus that were causing people in America to do and believe crazy things yeah. that would be very scary <laughs> that would be absolutely because yeah. we all know that infectious diseases and pathogens and so on are very scary. I mean, very one scary. way of being paranoid and freaked out is to think that something is tainting or poisoning your culture, and that's right. a, that's a good way to vilify something. Is to right? It's sort of from uh, yeah. I'm going to say fascist. I think that's that's yeah. that's a fa from the fascist playbook is to it a, definitely a, is accuse your enemies of being any of the following. Cockroaches, yeah, zombies, right. people infected with a virus, <laughs> yeah, uh, that is calling on a sort of um, well, primal instinct, primal, yeah, uh, dangerous groupthink. I think I think Paul Ricard, when he talks about different kinds of evil, says the most primitive, basic, ancient idea of evil is something like infection or right. illness and sickness. And so here is one thing. Sometimes Snoopy in Peanuts, um, hmm. in the final panel, somebody has said something idiotic in the second panel. And Snoopy <laughs> in the third panel is just sitting there, and there's a thought balloon above his head that says, my mind reels with sarcastic replies. <laughs> and when someone talks about the woke mind virus, I find yeah, myself in yeah. the position of Snoopy, <laughs> that my mind reels oh, with sarcastic replies. Me but I want to, if my mind reels, I'm not going to be an effective podcast host. I think I want to figure out a reply and 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 to 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 treat these ideas and concerns behind them with enough respect i don't want to just be snarky i don't think that no helps. absolutely and the reason i think this is genuinely terrifying is that it's not just silly 
I mean, there's a lot of silly, vilifying, radical ideas and so on. But oftentimes when these bad guys are picked out, it's stuff that I'm not philosophically... Uh, sympathetic with. I, I'm lost. Who are the bad guys in this? Oh, the bad guys are the French uh, postmodernist, post-structuralist. It's mostly French, late 20th century, deconstruction, Foucault, Derrida, all these people who are spreading skepticism about traditional Western values and grand narratives. And there's a lot of skepticism, a lot of textualism, a lot of sort of immersion in language and language play and ambiguity. And a lot of people find this very pernicious and dangerous. I'm going to speak up for the interested listener here yeah and ask you to go through that 10 times more slowly (laughs) what what is a grand narrative ah well okay so here's part of the problem what i was saying is the reason i'm not sympathetic with a lot of this philosophical content is because a lot of it is kind of hard to pin down and tends to be vague and here's a good example what counts as a grand narrative or a narrative grand narrative is just a fancy way of saying a big story you can tell a big story of who we are and where we came from and where we're going it literally means big story (laughs) the earliest modern version, I think, that was made reflective by its critics was what's called the emergence of Whig history after the Protestant Reformation. So there's a structure of history, just like you were saying. Okay, well, tell me a story. What's the story of Whig history? It's come to just mean optimism about history tending towards progress. And the idea was the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, obviously because of British history, was a great step forward. And everything that happens is tending towards the good, which happens to be defined by more or less where we've wound up. Mm -hmm. So where we are now is the kind of telos that history is tending to. So you read history as tending towards the reasonable common sense of the day, which looks like a very unreflective uncritical view about the present day prejudices and so on. But it got replaced by other grand narratives. There's Hegel and then Marx. And then there's there's all kinds of But the problem with the category is that it tends to include lots of general theoretical frameworks that tell you about human nature and human flourishing. So there's Marxism, there's Freudian psychoanalysis, maybe there's existentialism, there's all these grand stories that that purport to unify everything. And the problem with the grand narrative is not just the idea that there was supposed to be just one true one. It was more like a lot of ideological and philosophical discourse was a battle or a competition among these big stories, and you had to align yourself with one of them, and it was ideological. Okay, let me let me just let me just say something sympathetic to the grand narrative. Yeah. Here's the thing that I've heard people say, and I'm kind of sympathetic to it. Yeah. And they say, this country was dedicated to the notion that all human beings were created equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we are struggling to make good on that promise. Mm -hmm. And there's some rhetoric like this in Martin Luther King. Yeah. We're struggling to make good on that promise. Yep. So that's a grand narrative. A bunch of um, guys in the 1700s wanted to create a country where people would be treated equally and their descendants are gradually trying to make good on that and i i'm sympathetic to that and then i'm also sympathetic to if somebody comes along and says nah it's not going anywhere it's just a bunch of crabs fighting in a barrel nobody's (laughs) trying to make things better everybody is pretending they are but that's just bs Uh i'm sympathetic to the view that that contribution to the debate might be dangerous because uh-huh. it just yes. causes people to kind of be like, okay, I won't do anything about, yeah. about the problems in this society because we're not going anywhere. 
And uh, we're just fighting for whoever has temporary advantage and telling a bunch of lies. So if that's what these French guys who you teach, Taylor, <laughs> if that's what they are trying to teach our young people, yeah. I'm a little discomfited by okay. it, too. All right. Okay. One thing at a time here. Let me okay. see. There's uh, one point is that just the idea of human equality, I don't think by itself counts as a grand narrative. I think it's but part no, of a grand narrative. But no, we're trying to achieve it. We used to not have well, it when okay. they were kings and, and, and popes. But even that. And now we're trying to get there. Okay. It's a grand value, but it's it's at best one part of a larger grand narrative. If, if right. the word If the term grand narrative is going to mean very much, it has to be part of a story. It can't be that's it to the story. Well, I'll tell the story. The story is once upon a time... Kings and priests held people in subjugation. And then people realized, that's not right. Let's do something about it. And first, they got rid of kings. And then they got rid of priests. And then they realized, um, people of different races are subjected. Let's get rid of the authority of the white race and colonial empires. And then they noticed, hey, women are subjected. Let's get rid of the authority of men. And then they noticed, hey... Gay people are subjected. Let's get rid of the authority of heteronormativity. So it's a narrative that starts with people all enslaved, yeah. and it's ending with freedom. Yeah. Is that is that too grand? Did I get too grand? <laughs> My skepticism about that is that looks like a story that's constantly getting rewritten as we're making what you and I would call progress. Right. But a lot of that progress on the ground was in conflict with the received grand narrative at the time. So, for example, this liberal democratic picture that you and I both operate in, and I think we both yeah. embrace it, initially was quite blind to the injustice of, say, slavery and racial inequality, not to mention, you know, sexual orientation or identity and so on. So this grand narrative, so-called, the reason I think it's not a grand narrative is because it has been evolving and changing and morphing to suit the kinds of steps forward that you and I would recognize. But the original grand narrative, if there was one, was probably more plausibly described as liberal, democratic, uh, even democracy was a kind of tenuous thing early on in the history of the United States. Democracy used to be a bad thing. Yeah, it used to be a bad thing. And also... Right, and originally it was a term of abuse. And also there wasn't very much interest in actually promoting it. It was highly aristocratic. The idea was you could make progress through purely political and legal means, and you could ignore the economic substructure that Marx pointed out and others pointed out that it's all fine and well to talk about equality and liberty and ignore the fact that some people starve. And that's still a ideological fighting point in American politics about whether equality, including economic equality, social equality, is worth the state stepping into. So I think there's not one grand narrative there. Uh -huh. I think, And uh -huh. I think skepticism about grand narratives is skepticism about much more particular, specific grand narratives that are often standing in the way of progress on very concrete, specific issues and things that are important to people, which changes from generation to generation and is still changing today. And then also, more broadly, and I think this is what worries critics, uh, sort of as it were in the political center against the progressive left, is that it's a skepticism that any such grand narrative is going to be very useful in guiding us, because they've always ended up being these rickety, very soon to be obsolete forces of conservatism and reaction, rather than sources of progress. Though a lot of the particular values I would never want to give up, and I think are essential, right? like equality. So I think I hear what you're saying. And I'm going to try and restate it. Mm -hmm. so, it says a couple of things. One is you could say what we're doing is not performing a play that was written by the founding fathers or, or God or reason or whoever writes plays, whoever writes these sorts of narratives. Mm -hmm. Very wise ancestors. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we're doing improv. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where we've been given some prompts right. by the past 
And we have much more freedom to play with those prompts and co-write a story together. Yeah. Is that one of the things you're saying? I think that's exactly right. And notice the danger of the Whig history sort of creeping back in, because once you make these kinds of progress, and if you say, look, uh, workers have to be able to strike, for example, which kind of seems almost self-evident to us now, but was not at all obvious to most people that that was something that should be protected by law. And then sexual identity, gender, and so on, all these things are not obvious to people. And then in retrospect, they come to seem self-evident as if we all knew all along this is where history was tending and going forward. So I think it takes a while for these grand stories to catch up with people's concrete, on-the-ground, practical, Uh lived experience kinds of intuitions about what's going wrong in the society and what's going right and what we should do about it. I think we're very much at one of those points where to sound liberal and wanting to ally yourself with the reasonable majority, the consensus views, you're almost guaranteed to be behind the curve a little bit because changes in civility and manners and ideas is going to look to you like a radical departure from the story you're used to. Right. That's um, part of what I want to say today is I think people often, and I don't know about deliberately, but it happens in many conversations, debates about uh, identity politics and cultural appropriation, that there's a confusion of what I think is really going on in our culture, especially now, is changes in manners and civility and what it means to respect each other and to listen to each other. And when people who are usually underrepresented and their voices aren't heard start speaking up, it starts sounding to some people who are used to the old manners like this is a threat to their freedom. And they're, we're trying to sort of prevent people from doing things, or this is not allowed or permitted anymore. They perceive that as an imposition of political correctness. And what it is is a transformation of civility, standards of civility and manners. And I think people who say, look, listen, listen to people when they say, we think we're not being respected or recognized— Listen to them. Don't be a jerk, uh, as our friend T. Nguyen says. And that's important to separate that from questions of what's prohibited, what's allowed, what there are laws against, and what people get fired for, which is often, you know, they're real injustice about people getting fired for saying things. That happens on the left and on the right all across the spectrum. That's a bad thing, but it's not only happening on the left. So there's a bunch of issues right? There's the issue of almost like a sociological issue of people in a multiracial democracy getting along in areas like academia and journalism. And that's an issue. And then there's an issue of um, the laws of free speech. Right. And that's an issue. And then there's a third issue, which is sort of like, what is... Like it's a more philosophical issue, and I, and I maybe there's four issues. Yikes, it might even be seventeen. But like some of the other issues seem to be, you know, what's true, and what's the best way to run our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. And, yeah. and I feel like this could be a multi-part series, but I feel like I want to talk about Foucault. Like I want to talk right. about something Good. philosophical. Me too. Because yeah. if somebody asks me, hey. In Hawaii, they set aside a certain number of positions for Native Hawaiians to deal with the fact that they're the victims of historic injustice. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? And I'm like, well, that sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. Well, how many positions should be set aside for them? Mm. I would have to say, well, I don't know enough about Hawaiian history and Hawaiian sociology to weigh in on that. Good answer. So I kind of don't want to get into that right now. 
But I would like to talk about Michel Foucault. Good. Maybe we should take a break and then come back. And Let's come back and we'll talk about, did this frightening, yeah. bald French homosexual invent <laughs> a virus which we are all suffering from, especially yeah. people who disagree with us? Okay, we'll come back. <laughs> Okay, we're back. We're back to talk about Michel Foucault. Michel Who is he Foucault. and why is he getting people's knickers in a knot? <laughs> and his bald head. And is that why Steve Jobs took on his... Oh, you know what? I saw a clothing catalog and it was an advertisement for turtlenecks. And they had pictures of Foucault wearing a turtleneck. And it was... Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Who was Michel Foucault and what did he believe? And why are people frightened of it? Right. So Michel Foucault was a historian slash philosopher. I mean, he was a very philosophical historian. He wasn't a philosopher in a very narrow traditional sense that you learn about in school. But he's an extremely philosophically deep, thoughtful historian who came out of a kind of what's called the structuralist tradition, although he always denied that he was a structuralist. And he's got good mm -hmm. reasons for denying that, I think. Uh, we don't have to go into that here. And he wrote about mental illness, prisons, medicine, uh, sexual orientation, homosexuality, and all kinds of social phenomena that he thought were very problematic and that revealed something about the way especially modernity had come to understand what a human being is and how we understand ourselves. I mean, it's it's really, I think, philosophically deep and ingenious counter-history, call it a counter-narrative, to what you usually hear about how everything has been getting better and better since the 17th or 18th century. Well, was he a conservative? Did he think everything has been getting worse and worse? No, but you can have that impression. If you read him, it can start to sound like a nightmare, that everything you thought was progress like treatment of the mentally ill, instead of throwing them into an insane asylum, these places that used to be called hospitals were really just sort of places you throw people who are misfits and troublemakers. And they could be criminals, they could be schizophrenics, they could be homosexuals, they could be the homeless, whatever. You throw them all in, and that looks completely barbaric and stupid, which let's just say, okay, it was. But it's easy to say that in retrospect. But when people start treating mental illness as an illness and applying a medical model to it, so you're really trying to help these people and treat them, the standard story, and still part of our common sense, is that was a step forward. This is enlightened and obviously better. Now, here's the trick. Foucault I think, never just says it's worse. But what he does say is that if you're not critical of it, you're in danger of just lapsing into a complacent idea that it's nothing but progress and it's fine. But in fact, it has its own dangers. The impression you can get from Foucault's dystopian-sounding counter-narratives is that he thinks everything is just getting worse and worse. So is this a fair summary? You think that when you tell people that they can't wander through the street talking to the gods <laughs> and they in fact they have a mental illness and they deserve to be treated by a doctor you think that's just a step in the right direction but actually you're paying a pretty significant price for that move mm -hmm. and it's not necessary you could treat people in many many different ways yeah and it seems like viewing people as rational subjects who are overcome by mental illness is the only thing to do and the whole social the all the social consequences of that view the psychiatry psychiatric hospitals social workers that follow along with that view are also optional yeah so he's just making a plea for 
unintended consequences of our attempts to be helpful and yeah. opening up the discussion that there might be alternative ways of viewing ourselves and treating each other. Is that fair? Well, right. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually the way things were going about the time Foucault was writing this massive tome called The History of Madness. And in the 1960s, there was a kind of counter reaction to this idea that you need to hospitalize and institutionalize anybody with a mental illness, because in some ways, what you're doing is incarcerating people and subjugating them to treatment, which they might not want. So there was a big emptying of a lot of asylums in the 1960s. There was a reaction against this because, yeah, it's an open question, I think, in any given case, whether you should, uh, you know, kind of insist on treating this person, even if they're ambivalent or resistant, or whether they're better off if you kind of leave them alone. But as a philosopher, Foucault at least seems to be trying to say, know yourself, yeah. wake up. Yeah. It's not like human beings have a nature right. and we understand it well enough to know the only thing to do with somebody who's talking to Jesus in Columbus Circle is to give him uh, Seroquel. Exactly. You could choose to do that. It might even be the right thing to do. But don't think that um, your insight into what a human being is is answering that question for you. Is that, is that right? Oh, yeah, that. Or to give them a lobotomy or give them electroshock right. therapy. You know, I'm not saying it was a widespread thing that those things were forced on anybody, but people were talked into thinking this was a good idea. And there was a huge amount of damage done by that kind of surgical intervention. Like one of the things that I sometimes have thought, and I'm not trying to shame anyone who's on antidepressants at all, but I do think that being told that your distress is an illness that must be treated by a pill is itself a pretty depressing idea. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, I think that's partly why people often resist these Treatments and people who suffer from bipolar disorder are often very resistant to go on medication because what they say about the manic phase of manic depression is that it is exhilarating and euphoric and they feel creative and productive. And um, yeah, so uh, now I'm not saying they're right. They have to find out in their own experience, you know, what's going to work for them and what isn't. The depressive swings are usually so terrible that they're often glad to have the medication because antidepressants, you know, they really help people. Yeah. Anyway, the other thing I want to say, though, about this, uh, so about Foucault, I gave you a kind of thumbnail sketch of yes. what he was doing. Yes. He often is very concerned with what, and I'll put it in my words to make clear what I think of the criticisms of him. Uh, he's very interested in what gets taken to be true at a certain mm -hmm. time in history. What gets taken to be true and right and normative and justified, what is taken seriously and listened to, and what is ignored, and that's really the focus. People often say Foucault didn't believe in truth. He didn't believe in objective truth. He didn't believe in universal truth. And so he's a dangerous skeptic because apparently anything goes. And some people even go so far as to say he's to blame. He and Derrida and all these French intellectuals, post-structuralist, post-modern intellectuals, are somehow obliquely responsible for the post-truth era we're living in, people like Donald Trump and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that is so completely ridiculous. But the reason it's ridiculous at its root is because Foucault never says anything like he doesn't believe in truth. He doesn't, he doesn't even say he doesn't believe in universal truth or objective truth. He's not really interested in the nature of truth in the way a traditional philosopher would be. He doesn't have a theory of truth. What he's got is a historian's interest in what gets taken to be true. And that's what he's talking about. And he thinks that we're not critical enough 
about the way in which we just take some things to be true and obvious, as opposed to contingent and variable and so on. So there's a huge brush that people paint him with, like he's this you know, nihilistic skeptic who doesn't believe in truth and doesn't believe in universal values. I could make a very good case that I think the reason he wrote all the books he wrote was because he was trying to speak the truth and find out the truth, and he even believes in freedom, because what he's really interested in people, the new ways that people are being denied freedom by techniques and practices and treatments that everybody just assumes are good for the person and therefore emancipating and helping them be more free, like prisons. The prison was supposed to make somebody more free by getting them to focus on their own conscience and be responsible by having their behavior disciplined and structured so that they could get out of the criminal life and so on. And we all know that that turned out to be a nightmare. Right. Prisons are torture chambers. So Foucault thinks... We tell ourselves a lot of comforting stories about how we believe things that are true yeah. and we do things that help people be free. But many of these stories are lies or at least under evidenced if we want to be more polite. It's yeah. a, there's a fair right. lack of evidence. It, he's just like Socrates, though, isn't he? I mean, so, yeah. going around <laughs> and telling people who right. think that they know that they're doing the right thing yeah. that they aren't is an old it's, it's the basis of the yeah. Western philosophical tradition. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that analogy, but he is a kind of gadfly. That's right, exactly. And I think he gets that from Nietzsche. Nietzsche had a very interestingly ambivalent relation to Socrates, kind of hated for what he stood for in the rise of Platonism and the, what that became in Christianity. But I think he also identified with the gadfly role that Socrates had to his culture. That's what Nietzsche wanted to be. And I think Foucault inherits that from Nietzsche. It's a good point. You know, it... It used to worry me, like when I was an undergraduate, because I wrote my thesis uh, about um, criticisms of the concept of truth in Nietzsche and uh, Madhyamaka Buddhist philosophy. Uh -huh. And it used to worry me that if people think the concept of truth is bogus, they are thereby appealing to a concept of truth. Yeah, of course. Um is that a good thing to worry about? Like Nietzsche well, sometimes I... <laughs> says that truth is a mobile army of metaphors. It's just a lie that, uh -huh. you know, has a good pair of running shoes that can get ahead of the other lies. Um, well... <laughs> and, and and then you might you might worry. And when, when I was an undergraduate, before I decided to give it up and write fiction, uh -huh. um, I was worried that it was like, well, isn't that very statement, truth is just a lie, yeah. supposed to be true? Is that something worth worrying about? Well, yes, for about two minutes until you realize right. that it's obviously self-defeating. And it's true that Nietzsche said a lot of things like that that are kind of sloppy and not well thought out. And, and Socrates said stuff like that, too. He claimed to know that he knows nothing. Um, um, yeah. Isn't that exactly although, the same problem? Well, no, but I think he was restricting the claim to knowledge of what's ethically right and virtuous. He claimed that he didn't know what the virtues were. But surely he felt there was some kind of performative contradiction that he went around asking people, so he must have thought that that was better than just or ordering from Domino's or whatever the, <laughs> at the end of the Well, um, not yet. I think where you get into the performative contradiction, if it's quite a contradiction, at least it's a tension, is that when he refutes the definitions that they offer him, you might think, and he likes to pretend that all he's doing is seeing that that can't be right just because of it's internally inconsistent or whatever. I think it's got to be the case that the reason he's able to defeat all these definitions that people offer about justice and piety and courage and wisdom is because he actually does know something about what they are. So what I think is that he's being ironically self-deprecating. So maybe Nietzsche and Foucault are being ironically self-deprecating too. Maybe. Maybe, yes. Well, I think Nietzsche, you know, when you say, when you quote the passage from that early essay, 
that truth is just a mobile army of metaphors and metonyms and so on, and that truths, truths are lies that we forget that are lies and so on. Formulated in those pithy, memorable ways, they are often self-defeating and not plausible. But I think he's got a lot of other better things to say. The whole view that's called perspectivism that emerges later on is much more sophisticated and I think is properly understood not as the idea that there's no truths, nothing can be true, it's all lies and fictions. The idea is rather that there's a lot of truths there's no definition you can give of truth, and anything that's true is true from a point of view, and therefore the where you go wrong is thinking that the particular perspective you have gives you the whole story about the truth period, and where in right. fact it's one fra- So in other words, there's a view he develops later which is not vulnerable to that easy refutation. I guess the way I landed was I sort of thought, yeah, we say things in different contexts for different reasons, and sometimes we'll say there is truth. And sometimes we'll say there isn't truth. Hmm. And they both have their role to play in our lives. Well, about some things, there aren't any truths. And about some things, there are. And maybe it's uh, okay to be self-refuting every now and then, you know, because you're just, uh, you're getting out and sort of out of your comfort zone. And you may end up saying things that turn out to be nonsense. And besides the thing about Nietzsche, too, is that he is kind of provocative deliberately so he is trying to lure you in by saying something which sounds so outrageous that he pulls you in and you can think about it so you also have to take these as kind of strategic and maybe like you say deliberately a paradoxical things i don't think foucault ever says things well i can't think of one right now that's quite like that that's quite like deliberately paradoxical that sounds like it must be wrong therefore he's pulling you in with a kind of um provocative contradiction. I think it's more like he says things that just sound like counter common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's fine, because that's perfectly rational to say things like that. So I wonder, um, I just have to say this, which is, there's an awful lot of skepticism that comes from a lot of different places. And, and I, I certainly think that this woke mind virus talk, yeah. it, it kind of comes from the selfish gene. Hmm if I were to trace its intellectual genealogy, because mm. um, Dawkins says that um, memes, and this is not the sense of memes in, where it's like a photo of a cat sipping, you know, <laughs> orange juice. It's a different sense of meme. It's related. Yeah. yeah, Memes are sort of self-replicating cultural units. So like the prime example is like a chain letter, that you get a chain letter which says, if you make 10 copies of this letter and send it to other people, you'll have good luck. And if you don't do anything, you'll have bad luck. And that letter interacts with people's brains to make them send copies of itself and therefore propagates itself through the culture. And these chain letters or their internet version of them keep keep replicating. Hmm. And that's an interesting way of looking at culture. I think it's limited, but it's interesting. But it's a profoundly skeptical way of looking at culture because it means that if there's such a thing as mind viruses, mm. and let's just open it up and say there are probably, if there are woke mind viruses, for sure there are anti-woke and conservative mind viruses. Yeah. And if I'm suffering from some sort of compound infection of woke, centrist, and conservative mind viruses, <laughs> that's a pretty skeptical thing. I don't know what to do about that. Oh, yeah. And I know that the right wing doesn't want me to go to uh, the CDC for it. 
That'd make them very upset. So if they really believe in this theory of mind viruses, we're in much deeper epistemic trouble than Nietzsche believed or Foucault. <laughs> that may be right. I hadn't thought about this so much. I think, but I think people like Dawkins who have that view about culture, they are very skeptical about a lot of cultural well, stuff. Well, they, they tend don't... to be not terribly skeptical about their own views. That's right. Is, well, unfortunate thing. That's because the when I read The yeah. Selfish Gene, it put me in a little bit of a tizzy. But then I was like, well, but wait a second, the selfish gene is itself a meme. So we've, we've gotten precisely nowhere. <laughs> I know. And I remember from Dawkins' God delusion book. I'll have to look this up again to make sure I got it exactly right. But I thought it was kind of funny about the attack on religion there is that religion, he says, categorically is child abuse, right. which is kind of shocking. Uh, but then there's other passages in which he says, except for Anglicanism which is kind of fine because he and, he and Christopher Hitchens grew up in this sort of Anglican culture where that's obviously benign religion. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute now. Is it religion that's child abuse and the end of the world? Or is it, that's the Whig history. I mean, I or think- Or is it the religion of people uh, who are slightly browner in complexion <laughs> of course. than the uh, author of the exactly. book? Exactly, yeah. all these savages Because yeah. they there. all jumped yeah. on to full-on horrendous Islamophobia. Right um, after 9-11. It was a reaction yeah. to 9-11. It, it was a reactionary response to 9-11. And yeah, I mean, it's got an ugly history. But yeah. that's the Whig history. I think Herbert Butterfield, who wrote this book called The Whig, the Whig View of History or The Whig mm -hmm. Conception of History or something like that. Yes. It's a constant danger that your own prejudices creep in to be the telos or the standard of reasonableness that everything should be tending to. But what I was going to say about the Dawkins view about memes, that's originally supposed to be a kind of reductionist view about something analogous to genes. Yes. The reason it's called memes is because they're supposed to be like genes. I already think yes. that's actually a very bad analogy. Why? Because the genes really are hereditary. You know, the genome is hereditary and persisting and changing across slow changes of evolutionary history. And it's true what you said about memes. They're more like viruses. This is what Stephen Jay Gould said. Uh, these cultural sort of tropes are more like viruses that come and go and infect and then disappear. They don't have anything like the historical structure of the genetic basis of evolution. Well, okay. I, I, I think I might, I might disagree with you there. Because I think you could argue that, um, like, the Constitution... It's a series of letters, and one of the things that series of letters does is it tells people that they ought to take that series of letters seriously, and before they make any big move, like putting people in prison, they have to consult those series of letters, and then they need to teach that series of letters to the next generation, because it's terribly, terribly important. Yeah. It seems a little bit analogous to the genetic code of American politics. A little bit, but here's the difference. And this is something, yeah. by the way, which Foucault is very good about. I think the thing that Foucault is most famous for methodologically is that he's very attuned to how fragile these cultural sort of formations or historical worlds are. And they do look stable often for several centuries at a time, and then they pop like a soap bubble. Interesting. And so the transition from Renaissance thought to what he calls classical thought uh, which is basically 17th and 18th century, and the transition from that to modernity, which is 19th and 20th century, roughly, is quite abrupt and quite a gestalt shift. It's like a kind of incommensurability of paradigms, as Kuhn said in the history of science. He thought that there were these same revolutionary changes in which the things that you're pointing to can look very persistent, like a genome for a while. Well, well Gould has this punctuated equilibrium idea. 
Well, that's why, well, that's why Stephen Jay Gould was pointing this out, too, is that actually, in fact, even evolutionary history is not quite as gradualistic and continuous. And there are better examples, which I don't know about bacteria, but take the lungfish. Uh-huh. It's got a swim bladder. It's got some genes for making a swim bladder. Yeah. And then pretty quickly, that becomes a, a, a lung. Yeah. And it's there's some genetic conservatism, but these genes are getting repurposed for a very different phenological purpose. Right, but you don't get T-Rex suddenly overnight replaced by a duckbill platypus. And in other words, these genetic changes, they're radical in one sense, that they transform an organism from uh, swimming around with fins to having little legs or something yeah. like that. But there's a lot of that genome which has to be continuous for it to be the species surviving. So these are little changes against a background of stability. And I think Foucault thinks, at least at the level of, well, at a certain level of cultural description, values, ways of talking... Uh, philosophical conceptions, religious beliefs or values, these things are much more susceptible to wholesale change very quickly. They're very unstable. Things change quickly, yeah. but if you look at uh, organisms which have very quick uh, lifespans, like bacteria, things can change quickly, too. Oh, that's true. And then there's also this weird stuff where they'll absorb a plasmid, you know. <laughs> but, it's a lot... It's a yeah. lot more catch as catch can. Okay, but what I'm saying is cultural memes, once we go back to cultural memes, okay. these things are really like soap bubbles. They come and I go see. especially quickly and don't leave much of a trace. I see. And so they don't have the same background stable structure against which minor variations make a big difference. What's that thing that Foucault calls a discursive formation? Yeah, that's a... What's a discursive that's, formation? That's a fancy way of saying how people talk. Um, okay. Uh, styles of speech acts kinds of speech acts that get taken seriously, the kind that have authority, which includes who gets to make them, like judges get to pronounce sentences and mm -hmm. ministers or justice of the peace gets to say, I now pronounce you man and wife. It's He admitted after some conversations with John Searle that what he's talking about is speech acts. Interesting. And the discursive formation is the whole set of norms about how one speaks what's appropriate, what's right, what's serious. So he likes to give these examples of things that were taken seriously at one time that just a few centuries later nobody takes seriously. Uh, my favorite example is that in the Renaissance, and I don't remember who said this, but the claim was that the number of heavenly bodies, and at this time that would include the sun and the moon, is seven, and that's because or at least very meaningfully correlated with the fact that there are seven holes in the head, two ears, two right. eyes, two nostrils, and a mouth. Uh -huh. now, now, that just is a joke now. And it's not that everybody believed it in the 15th century. It's that it's something you could say and not be just laughed out of the room. So the discursive formation determines whether something like that is going to be listened to or taken to be a candidate for truth. See, we don't say now that was proven to be false. It's not even a candidate of truth and falsity. You know, it's not that modern science proved or demonstrated that the number of holes in the head has nothing to do with the planets. It's just that that's obvious once you take on a different way of talking and thinking about the world. That's just not even, it's a non-starter, right? <laughs> so discursive formation means norms governing what you say and how you say it and who listens and who gets to speak. So right now, at least on Twitter, but also in real life, because there's this pretty significant uh, legal effort to um, roll back trans acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, and this takes the form of a big conflict where trans people say, I can be a biologically male woman, Yeah, use the pronoun she about me. Mm -hmm. And then the reactionaries, the TERFs and the anti-trans people say, oh, no, you can't. Yeah, I will never call you she. I shall always call you he. And maybe when we, we can take a little break and we can come back and 
and kind of use this as a test case to see what Foucault would have to say about that. Good. And then also reflect in general about um, what's going on. Like what's going on with all this claim that there's wokeness running amok and philosophers <laughs> are responsible, which seems which seems ridiculous. But, yeah. but let's try and take it seriously so we can understand the need that motivates them. Very good. excellent that was one of our finest breaks it was a good break so an example of a discursive formation that seems to be in the in almost its birth throes is a discursive formation that says people get to decide what gender pronoun to be they'd like to be referred to and if you want to know how to refer to someone's pronoun you don't you don't ask them to pull down their pants you just ask them right and then there seems to be a lot of people's like oh no you better ask them to pull down their pants or the sky will fall <laughs> along with those unfolding pants and pants seems, or the sky yeah. one or the other has to fall pick one yeah um, it seems so ridiculous on reflection and you step back a little bit from it but people feel very threatened by this yeah now the point about Foucault and discursive formations and ways of talking, it really does get to the heart of the meanings of words because mm-hmm. now there are still people who want to say uh, woman means female. Right. As if that's just obvious and set in stone and dictated by nature. And of course, it's a linguistic convention. And we want ways to say things we need to say and distinguish between well, make these different distinctions, the biological distinction between male and female. Now, I grew up and was educated in a a kind of intellectual world in which there was a kind of easy answer to this, which is that male and female is a biological distinction, masculine, feminine is a gender distinction, and that's cultural. One is innate and determined by biology, the other is cultural and conventional, and that's that. Turns out it's not that simple. We don't know that people don't have more or less innate or at least very early determined gender identifications. And at one point, I was probably in the benighted majority of people thinking that doesn't make any sense, that you can't have that. But of course you can. Who knows? I mean, we just don't know. So what about the words man and woman? Does that refer to biology or does it refer to gender? More and more people are insisting that that be as it were, on the gender side, whether gender is an acquired conventional thing, which it turns out it looks like it isn't probably just that. And this is very confusing, and it looks like we're undergoing a shift in what words mean, how they're to be used, and more importantly, I think, how they're to be used so that people feel respected and that they feel like they've got some dignity about their Mm self-determination. And by the way, that's one way in which I think these new norms that are emerging are very traditional and old-fashioned, because it's an insistence on a certain kind of autonomy and uh, individual liberty. So I don't think it's completely shifting our whole frame of values altogether. I think it's grabbing onto an idea that was very available to especially white, privileged men who felt like they were self-determining and autonomous, and they they could dictate how they were addressed and spoken about and so on, and a lot of groups who felt like they were robbed of that. So I think a lot of this, like I said before, has to do with manners, etiquette, civility, respect. It's not just, I don't mean to trivialize it by saying etiquette, but, I, but that's not unimportant. It's, it's civility and respect and uh, dignity that's at stake. I see. 
So we're looking at a situation where trans people are asked to be spoken of with respect. Yeah. And that seems good. Right. I like that. Um, and yet there are other people who are concerned that like giving respect to a trans woman is taking respect away from a lesbian separatist woman. <laughs> and is there, it seems like we're, we're dealing well, with this almost a scarcity of respect that if we, if we respect too many people, then there are people who feel that that's disrespecting them. This is the kind of thing people have to work out among themselves. How are we going to speak? How are we going to use language? Uh, I think the people who are more threatened and offended by transgender stuff are people who think that that what's being attacked is their freedom and how they're going to use language they often say you can't tell me how to talk right i'm uh -huh. going to use the word woman the way it's meant to be used i'm going to say he and she and a, a, a lot of the really transphobic stuff is in terms of like people feeling entitled to their own use of pronouns as if it's entirely up to them i guess i view that as one layer of the onion mm -hmm. but what's really going on is that people feel frightened that they and their children's sexual identities are uh -huh. being challenged oh that's for sure yeah and, and that then this don't tell me what to do is a sort of satellite issue coming from this actual issue which is i feel the way the culture is conceptualizing sex and sexual identity is threatening me and my family. That, that's what I think. And my happening. children, too, because my next children, thing you yeah. know, my children are going to be asking for bottom surgery, you know, and stuff yeah. like that. And that can seem very dangerous and very pernicious because if you don't believe any of the stories about, you know, this internal gender dysphoria or gender identification, you'll think this is really pernicious attempts to talk people into getting unnecessary surgeries and, and maybe losing their whole sense of their <laughs> gender identity. But that's that's a clue to the fragility of the reactionary view. Because if you think it's possible that your children's gender identity could switch, you know, from one thing to another, you're admitting yes. that it's not fixed. I mean, if you think it's fixed, you've got nothing to worry about. Yes. Right? I mean, Freud, I think, said things like that about incest. You know, if there's really an instinct against incest, right. there wouldn't have to be a taboo. Yeah. Because it would take care of itself. So That's true. That's often the way these kind of panics emerge is that a huge amount of power is ascribed to the dangerous influence. And I think this goes back to where we started with the French philosophers. That you can only think they're dangerous if you think our practices and values are so fragile that all that has to happen is that people read some difficult, obscure books coming from France, you know, since the 1960s, and everything is going to start collapsing. And I think if you think that, yeah, you ought to be scared to death because you think that civilization is hanging by a thread already. And of course it isn't. And it's also true... It's although it's the premise of our podcast, it's hard to talk people out of fear, right? Um, but I do think one way to talk people out of fear is to say, let's look at it from a couple of different points of view and be curious. And whatever the the feeling in your stomach when you're curiously investigating something is different from the feeling when you're in a panic that you're going to be killed. Yeah. Um. Right. Uh, yeah. And the other thing to maybe calm some of these fears is to also point out that there's actually a lot more stability. So that, first of all, there's a lot more stability and continuity in all the things you like and think should be preserved and protected, so you don't have to sort of be in a panic. But the other thing to remember is that a lot of the things that seem new and novel and scary and radical have probably been around forever. Yeah. In other words, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, 
when people were really in a terrible panic about homosexuality, they thought this was some new thing that was spreading again, like a virus or a disease. And we all know that there's always been heterosexuality, homosexuality, same-sex sex, and lesbianism, what we now call lesbianism and homosexuality. These are all very new terms. But yeah. people have always done all this stuff. There's always been gender diversity and non-binary and trans phenomena in different cultures under different names. So in a way, it's important to remember, for the most part, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, of course, there's new stuff. But a lot of this stuff has been around forever, and it's an exciting time we're living in because people are, like, discovering it as if— for the first time. So it's a kind of a beautiful moment in some ways that we can be a little bit more honest with ourselves about uh, what makes a human being a human being. And it hasn't been that different. You know, now my college students, they have nose rings and maybe you can't tell their gender right away and they've got green hair and you might think this is all like from another planet. It's not that different from what's ever been going on all the time. Right. And if, if a 16th century English aristocrat walked into your classroom. Yeah. He looks so much different from you and the yeah, and the green-haired yeah. nose ring would clearly be on the same team. Exactly. And yeah. uh, you know Charles the 1st in, in The his... Renaissance cod piece is the thing that always jumps out to me of those those yes. those paintings. I think, "Wait a minute, that was all right?" <laughs> looks like so yeah. yeah, but apparently it was. I do think so, things yeah. are not as different as they were is something to to think of as you think they are. Yeah. That's a good thing to notice. Yeah. And also Maybe things were always kind of scary and upsetting. That's also true. Exactly right. In ways we can hardly imagine now. The other thing to remember is, I just want to say, I'm a philosopher and I love philosophy and I think philosophy is deeply important. I think sometimes people overestimate the influence that it can have on you know, civilization and people's values and even politics. I think there's a kind of loose fit between, you know, these philosophical questions we've been asking about truth or we've been referring to anyway and you know, how truth matters to politics. Because the people who don't care about truth are the criminals and the liars and the bullies. I'll just say Trump. I mean, people like Trump. Yeah. He doesn't give a damn about truth. That's totally different from Nietzsche, Foucault, these philosophers are skeptical of grand narratives and so on. Uh, yeah, I think mushing those two things together is almost insane. Or it's a lie. Well, it's also a cynical lie. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing to remember. Is like, and a scapegoating. It's a kind of yeah. anti-intellectualist scapegoating. Yeah, and I think the word woke, I mean, I don't know if I got to say this earlier on. This is, this is a provocative term that's meant to be a term of abuse. Yes. And so I think it had its origins in uh, black liberation movements. It's one of these terms that was used internally that got co-opted by the opposition and used as a term of abuse. And I think it was always used with a certain degree of irony Yeah, uh, in African-American yeah. spaces. And, and it's a Racist dog whistle. It, it is. Uh, it is. And the same thing with political correctness, because that is a term that arose on the political left when the political left was trying to differentiate itself from orthodox Marxism. And the idea was, mm -hmm. let's not be politically correct, because that's a yes. Stalinist Soviet standard. And, of course, that got co-opted, I guess, mostly by the 80s, that it's, terms, uh, it's a term of abuse to say, oh, political correctness, yeah. political correct that. It's, a, it's an accurate description of some things people say and do, but it's a weapon. It's used as a weapon. Well, the funny thing about campus speech codes, and I haven't been involved in campus oh, yeah. life for a long time, uh -huh. is I was a GSI in Berkeley in the early 90s, and I had to sign a loyalty oath. Uh -huh. Yeah, I needed to sign a paper promising that I would do nothing 
to undermine the U.S. Constitution uh-huh. or the Constitution of the State of California. Oh, these go back. And forever. I was a little glib oh, because yeah. I never read the Constitution of the State of California, <laughs> and I don't know if I broke my oath. Uh-huh. But this is very. I don't old. remember anybody being, first of all, thinking about it or being terribly upset. So, so the idea that um, there was this golden age where you could say whatever you wanted no. and you could get up there and say. I think the Supreme Court should all be hanged. And I'm a professor. I'm allowed to say whatever I want, and there will be no consequences. That's not true. There was never a time like <laughs> there that. Were all, there are always consequences for speech. There was loyalty oaths, and, you know, 50 or 60 years ago, you could be fired from your academic job if somebody found pornography under your bed. I mean, you, there's right. never been that level of protection of speech and expression and so on. So these are not new. And maybe there should be, but let's have an honest conversation about that instead of pretending the Garden of Eden once existed and uh, students of color are burning it down. Yeah. Like, this is just a, a lie. Let me say something from sort of in within academia. Okay. That I am, I think probably a lot of people in academia have this feeling that there's a huge disconnect between the actual reality of what's going on in the academic world and the popular perception of it in the media, because there's such a caricature and such a vilifying of intellectuals and academia that you get all these gross stories about, like, the whole thing about trigger warnings. Like, oh, no, now everybody's being sort of, um, you know, coerced into issuing trigger warnings before they say anything that's at all disturbing. That was a complete fiction and a complete myth. The only reason that expression started getting used was because there was this advice and suggestion. It was never a rule anywhere, as far as I can tell. There was never a rule that you had to do this. It was an idea, again, about how to be decent and sensitive, that if something might upset somebody, you just say, oh, by the way, this might be upsetting to some of you. Now, what kind of tyranny of political correctness is that? It was never required of anybody, and it was just a suggestion that this might be a thoughtful thing to do. So it's that kind of distortion of the reality. But I will say, in spite of that, I just want to put in that first of all, is that what I hear in the media about academia and my experience are completely different. I mean, people are basically reasonable and decent and cooperative, and but it's not the case that there are no conflicts. And there are real conflicts about sort of speech codes and where academic freedom and freedom of expression run up against, for example, students in a classroom feeling respected. Mm-hmm. What can you say and what can you not say? And I'm not saying there's easy answers to those conflicts, but one is not the same as another. That I mean, one case of this is different from another. Um, Zionist students are sometimes very offended by what a professor will say in defense of the idea of Palestinian rights and the history of the Palestinians in Israel. And they might feel that they're just offended by what's being said, but you can really violate somebody's academic freedom by telling them, oh, you can't say that in the classroom. There are people who are very offended if somebody uses the N-word, which I think, you know, you shouldn't, but should the school be prohibiting that? I mean, I'm not saying any of these particular questions has an easy answer, but it is something we have to work out with each other in a kind of civil way that involves mutual respect. And when you have to have a policy, yeah, you have to draw a line, and it gets very difficult. So I don't want to make it sound easy. Yeah. But the other thing um, – oh, yes. Uh, it was always standard, and it is still standard in a lot of contracts, that you sign a loyalty oath. I don't know the status of this now. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't, and it's not a, completely a thing of the past. But also sometimes now professors have to sign a commitment to inclusiveness and diversity 
And that might look to them like they're signing away their freedom because maybe they'll be found to be acting in an, in an uninclusive, exclusive, non-diversity sort of way. I don't think I'm in favor of requiring people to sign those kinds of things, just like I don't mm -hmm. in favor requiring them to sign loyalty oaths. Because the way in which that's right and valuable to make sure everybody's committed to diversity and inclusiveness almost seems trivially obvious, and it should go without saying. And there's no point in making people sign something. Right. It also, it, yeah, it makes you wonder whether a group of professors who are treating each other with so much contempt. Or students. Or students with so much contempt need something like yeah. like uh, therapy or something like that <laughs> yeah. rather than to sign an oath. Besides which, if they're, I mean, if professors are doing things in the classroom that are really alienating and offending and insulting students so that students don't feel welcome or heard or whatever, that's a problem. That's not what a classroom is supposed to be like, to have a learning environment that's conducive to inquiry and questioning and reflection and conversation. There absolutely has to be some mutual respect and civility. So I don't yeah. think that's a radical idea at all. Uh, I don't think signing a piece of paper is going to help. But of course, I'm in favor of inclusiveness and diversity. I mean, that's what makes a healthy learning environment. So yeah. like I say, I would like to, to go without saying, I mean, not completely without saying, but taken for granted and embraced as a value that we're all committed to somehow. I would hope so. Yeah. Okay. This is this is murky. This is murky. But uh, you very often, our answers to the questions are deep and and create more distinctions. Mm -hmm. But I think if the question is, is the woke mind virus something that we should worry about? And was it created by Michel Foucault? The answer is, is no. Right. And I think if anything, it's a, it's a lot of hype and it's political rhetoric coming from more or less conservative uh, voices who are threatened by uh, a change in manners and civility and standards of mutual respect. That's how I see it. Yeah. And I also think there's a weird kind of gotcha quality to the debate mm -hmm. where the 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 anti-woke people are accusing the woke people of politicizing the academy mm -hmm. when they are politicizing the academy exactly. it's right or perhaps the academy is inherently yeah. political and i think that's an interesting question yeah what is politics and where does it begin and end and and what's the border between inquiry and politics I think that's a really good question, and, and I would like to bring, like, John Dewey to the party and not just... <laughs> yeah. Uh... yeah, I mean, your own politics always is invisible to you because you're looking right through it and thinking this is no politics at all, just like white is not a race or your own right. linguistic accent isn't an accent. Or Exactly right. Um, it's a pervasive lack of self-reflective awareness to I, think well, that... I'm looking for someone in the, in the... And maybe I'll occupy it, to take this position, which is... I, it's. I almost imagine it being sort of the Teddy Roosevelt position, mm -hmm. which is I'm so sure that I'm a moral good guy mm -hmm. that I welcome any information mm. that I'm not so I can correct myself and be even better, <laughs> like a kind of a chest thumping, morally confident approach to learning uh -huh. all the different ways in which I'm unjust. Because <laughs> I, I feel there's a weird sort of like, oh my God, people are making me feel bad about myself. It's like, no, no, you're terrific. You could be a little bit better. You could be a little I bit see. better and I'll love you even more. I see. Well, that's um, nice. That's my position. That's a nice, that's a nice sentiment. Yeah. 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 Okay, everybody. 
Uh, I hope you're less terrified and ideally not yeah. terrified by woke mind viruses at all. I mean, what he might say to conclude is the world is a dangerous and scary place, but French philosophy is not the problem. No, it's not. And some of it is quite good. It's excellent. Some of it is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Good. Come back next bye week. Bye-bye. He showed me the Scottsboro Boys, and I shake hands with him, so I made this little song about down there. So I, I advise everybody to be a little careful when they go along through that, but stay woke. Keep their eyes open. This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.